This is an ABC podcast. G'day, beloved listeners. Welcome to the Little Wireless Program coming to you from Gadigal Country. A little later, the doomsday clock has never been closer to midnight. We'll find out why and learn its fascinating history a little later in the program. And then to cheer ourselves up, we're going to go walking through Australia's botanic gardens. But first, uh, disturbing news. Bruce Shapiro has been bodily abducted by aliens and in his absence, Kalu Kalei, we've uh, managed to get David Frum to come back to the program. You will recall, dear listener, that David was always my my favourite Republican. And David, there's so much for us to talk about in your country. You know, Biden's uh, second term, the, the Fox disaster, poor old Rupert, and, uh, well, other matters. So let's start with, uh, with Joe. Were you surprised? That he would run again? Yeah. No, I'm certainly not surprised. Um, politicians, I've spent a lot of my life around them. Um, they're different from other people. Uh, they don't believe they're mortal. Um, and however unrealistic that looks, they, they, they are supreme competitors. They're like professional athletes. Um, and so Biden, although he is 80 years old and um, Subject to all the ailments of, of human flesh, he is convinced he's the man, he's going forward, and he's not listening to naysayers. And, of course, he's got a reputation now as a Trump slayer. Um, he does have that. Um, and there is this uh, haunting question that many Democrats have, which is uh, their party uh, diverted Biden away from running in 2016 and favored Hillary Clinton instead. She was very much President Obama's preferred uh, successor. And the question Democrats have to wonder is, given how much better Biden ran among men in 2020 than Hillary Clinton did in 2016, would the whole Trump uh, presidency have been avoided had the party chosen Biden instead of Hillary Clinton in 2016? Now, you point out the politicians think they're immortal, but he'll be 86 if he survives, a, you know, a full second term. That's getting on a bit. It is indeed. Um, so, uh, you know, there are some realities here. It's kind of gruesome to talk about them. I, I, I don't, you know, we don't measure anybody, the length of anybody's days. Uh, who knows how long any of us have, including those who you know, register a little younger in the numeric count, we could, we could all be gone tomorrow. But it's something presidents do, of course, have to take succession very seriously. They need to think about that very hard in the choice of their running mate. You know, every time there's a presidential election, um, people start speculating which running mate will help a president or hurt. The evidence is pretty strong that uh, vice presidents make no impact on the ticket at all, except in the most unusual cases. There's some evidence that Lyndon Johnson helped John Kennedy in 1960. There's some evidence that Sarah Palin hurt John McCain in 2008. Other than that, they make no difference electorally. The difference they make is that the president has to plan his or someday her succession and needs to think very hard, is this person I'm choosing the person who can step in to do the job if anything should happen? Of course, he was helped by the lack of uh, serious, uh, serious opponents. There was that rather eccentric member of the Kennedy family, but not much else. Oh, in, in this, well, look, the, the, the Robert Kennedy Jr. is um, not opposition to Biden exactly. Robert, uh, one of the things that um, some of the Republican Party learned from the 2016 experience is if you have a, um, a weak Republican, as Donald Trump is, he's one of the weakest Republicans of all time, one of the ways you can help him is by making mischief inside the Democratic primary and, and then trying to come up with some kind of phony um, internal opponent, Tulsi Gabbard and now Robert F. Kennedy, who are actually weirdo crank extremists. Uh, Robert Kennedy combines. He's a Putin apologist. Of course, that's like always the giveaway. Um, he's an anti-vaxxer of the most malicious and malignant and destructive kind. Um, he's generally a conspiracy theorist. Um, but he, he, he has um, a le left-wing biography, but a right-wing outlook. So um, he's been promoted by many people in the right-wing world to enter the Democratic Party and do some mischief. Right now, he's polling 
sort of okay because a lot of people don't yet know the difference between him and his more famous father, murdered in 1968. Um, but as Democrats get to know him, he will collapse as you know uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Jill Stein and all every previous iteration of this project has collapsed. One of the reasons you're my favorite Republican is because, well, you uh, argue that the Donald is now cruising to, well, cruising to renomination, but also to disaster. Yeah, um, and, and not just him personally, by the way. He's going to. There's a lot of trouble ahead for Republicans in the 2024 cycle. But I'm, this is going to take a little bit of um, statistical analysis. So I hope listeners will bear with me. Um, since the year 2000. Um, there have been now six presidential elections in the United States. There have been, therefore, 12 major party nominees, starting with George W. Bush against Al Gore and ending in 2020 with Trump against Biden. If you take those 12 people and stack them in share of their popular vote from highest to lowest, you'll see that Donald Trump ranked 10th and 11th. Uh, he ranked 10th in 2020, 11th in uh, 2016. Only John McCain in 2008, running in the middle of the worst economic disaster, since the Great Depression, got a smaller share of the vote. Uh, Trump, uh, With Trump at the head of the party, Republicans lost control of the Federal House of Representatives in 2018. Uh, they lost the, both the Electoral College and the popular vote. They lost the popular vote in 2016. They lost both in 2020. In 2021, uh, with Trump candidates everywhere, they lost control of the United States Senate. And in 2022, although they regained the U.S. Federal House of Representatives, they lost a Senate seat, they lost two governorships, and they lost four state legislatures. And that's a down-ballot loss that is very abnormal uh, for the um, uh, for the out party in a, in a non-presidential year. So Trump has been a big drag because it's not just Trump. It is the coming explosion over the abortion issue that is hurting Republican chances. No wonder that your last book was called Trumpocalypse. Trumpocalypse. Um, Trump ended his presidency violently, um, and that, um, you know, we don't, it's considered somehow bad manners to bring this up all the time, but that is, that that hovers over him, and so does the project with Roe versus Wade, the Supreme Court decision that made abortion a U.S. federal constitutional right overturned. Um, suddenly there is a huge flurry of state activity to surveil and harass uh, women, and it is having a real impact on state politics. We saw that in 2022, and it will be bigger in 2024. How is it manifesting itself? I haven't uh, seen any persuasive figures on that. Well, let me go. Let me go back to my point about state legislatures. So there are 50 states. Uh, most states have a two-chamber legislature. One, Nebraska, has one, so that's 99 legislatures. Um, when uh, the, when there's not a presidential year, the party that is the out party almost always gains legislative seats. This time, the Democrats flipped four chambers, both of the two uh, Michigan chambers, um, which is something unprecedented since the 1930s. Uh, and the issue in state race after state race was the state passing state state Republican parties passing abortion restrictions. Um, and we uh, another tell was in the state of Wisconsin. Wisconsin is crucial to Trump's hopes. Wisconsin is the most gerrymandered state in northern in the northern United States. Republicans there typically get about 45% of the vote. They have nearly 65% of the seats in both houses of the state legislature. That gerrymander was approved by a very conservative state Supreme Court. In uh, in the past month, there was a, a an election for the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin, and the conservatives lost their majority. And they lost it over the abortion issue, uh, but they also have had that has the effect of putting to an end um, their control over the gerrymandering process. So Wisconsin may suddenly go from being a state where Republicans win no matter how small a share of the vote they get to a state where um, that is suddenly competitive and where Republicans are likely going to lose in 2024. Without Wisconsin, the whole Trump map doesn't work anymore. Has DeSantis come and gone already? Yeah, um, DeSantis was the great hope of the big money in the Republican Party. Um, He's obviously a more orderly and less pathological personal than Donald Trump. Fox News went all in from him. He had hundreds of interviews on Fox News over the past two years uh, at a time when Donald Trump was almost entirely shut out until just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he, he's raised tens of millions of dollars. Um, he is quite popular in the state of Florida, partly because he kept the schools open or reopened the schools early during COVID. Parents like that. And it turned out to be good for the kids and not too dangerous. It was a good call. Um, but... As a national candidate, he just 
his message has been Trump was great. Trump deserved reelection. Trump was the victim of a Democratic plot. Vote for me. And, and people couldn't follow the logic of that. Well, if Trump's so great, why don't we vote for Trump? Of course, DeSantis also had the audacity to take on Walt Disney. Yeah, well, that's an that was an example of one of his miscalculations, is that that was a symbolic side issue. It's, it's really, it just couldn't be dopier. Um, and that, that began as cheap point scoring for Fox News clicks and likes. Um, but he got drawn. He lost perspective. Um, there is a kind of um, with uh, single-mindedness with DeSantis where he, he can't – he's not nimble. He's not a nimble politician. He can do one big thing at a time and he goes all in and he never understands – You know, this was just a frolic. This was just a symbol. So he's now in this major legal battle with Disney that he's going to lose. So it's one thing it's, – it's dumb enough if you say I'm running for president on the basis of my war on Disney. But it's worse when you say the war on Disney that I am currently losing in the courts. Heavens above. So we can wave goodbye to DeSantis and there's no one else. I that... wouldn't. No? You don't, I wouldn't quite say that. I would say he's fa He's deflating. Um, he's still got about, um, he's still got support in internal Republican polls. Um, if something truly catastrophic were to happen to Trump in the next 60 to 90 days, DeSantis might revive. That, that, that's not unimaginable. Um, it's, but he is faltering. And if Trump uh, and, and Trump is leading. Trump's 30 points ahead among Republicans. And presumably the Democrats want Trump to be the candidate. No. I, well, I, if they do, that's very foolish. Um, you, uh, because the, the major party nominee can always win, um, even if the odds are against him. I mean, Trump is very unpopular, very unlikely to win, but it's not impossible. I mean, it's, it's, he'll have a one and two, basically there'll be two choices and he'll be one of them. Um, so you sh I think that Democrats should rationally prefer DeSantis to win whatever micro calculations they have, because if a Republican does win, you'd much rather have a DeSantis presidency, which would be obnoxious to Democrats in a lot of ways, but not pathological than a Trump presidency, which would be pathological. Now, let's go back to Fox and Rupert. As you uh, rightly point out, Trump's been frozen out and now he's being welcomed back by, uh, by Fox after a catastrophic legal finding. How much permanent damage has that done to, uh, to Fox News? Well, um, I, it's done a lot. I mean, obviously, they, they gave up a quarter of their cash in just this one lawsuit, and there are more lawsuits coming, so that's painful. Um, Fox is in a dilemma where um, if they connect to reality, they lose important parts of their audience. If they disconnect from reality, they risk losing important parts of their money. Uh, so that's a painful, uh, a painful question. I mean, that Fox has seen it when it fired tucker carlson and we don't know exactly why they fired tucker carlson um there are a lot of stories out there but um it's also true and this may not be the cause that carlson was the leading voice of conspiracy theories and anti-vax nonsense and uh, and of course pro-putin sentiment on the american um t television uh, filter so, uh, but when with his firing, Fox has seen a decline in its audience as its viewers have mutinied and said, okay, if you won't give us crazy on Fox, we'll go chase crazy somewhere else. <laughs> uh, what a country you were in, you dwell, David. Look, it's marvelous. Oh, well, uh, hey, don't, don't blame me. You, you invented Murdoch. <laughs> True. I take personal responsibility. <laughs> take, yeah. Yeah. These so, days, of well, course... You know, we've, been, we've been warning a lot about immigrants coming in and doing damage to their culture. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> David Frum, author of The Axis of Evil, these days staff writer for The Atlantic out of Washington, D.C. Thanks, David. Coming up, is the clock ticking for humanity as we know it? Now, beloved listeners, a very soothing bedtime story. Humanity, closer than it's ever been, to a global catastrophe of our own making. And that's according to the famous doomsday clock in Chicago. We're now just 90 seconds away from that symbolic midnight hour. So what brought us to this 
perilous moment and can we turn back the clock? Rachel Bronson is President and CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences. Rachel's had a long career and foreign policy work from Washington to Harvard and Columbia University. And she's one of the timekeepers of the Doomsday Clock at the Bulletin and uh, joins us now from Chicago. Rachel, uh, this January, your Doomsday Clock ticked ever closer to midnight. In fact, it's never been so close before. Why? Yeah, well, thank you for asking and thank you for having me. So over the last number of years, we've been steadily moving the clock closer to midnight and the clock can go forward and backwards. So sometimes the question is, can it be moved away from midnight? It can, but we've been steadily moving it closer to midnight for a variety of reasons I'm happy to talk about. But your question is uh, this last move and why did we move it um, so much closer? And the the key uh, for us this year was the fighting in Ukraine. And the true threats of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine, threats that we really haven't seen um, for decades, and put us, in many cases, uh, a lot closer to uh, use or even accidental escalation of nuclear weapons. All of that kind of led us to move the hands closer to midnight. We um, published the report in Russian and Ukrainian uh, to ensure that the message got through. And your warning, of course, has been echoed by the UN Secretary General, who uh, says, and I quote, it's a time of nuclear danger not seen since the height of the Cold War. Tell me more about uh, the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences in Chicago, where the doomsday clock lives. I'm aware that uh, Leo... uh, Sealand and Einstein wrote a very important letter to FDR. Does it date from that moment? That letter was 1939 and the founding of the bulletin is 1945. Um, but that letter is such, is such a fascinating letter and it's actually worth taking just a little time because it sets the scene for how quickly and how uh, the, the kind of technology moved. In 1939, Einstein and Szilard were great, great scientists of the day. And they had begun to understand that uh, not only did they have fears that the Germans were trying to create nuclear weapons, but for the first time, they believed that the Americans could possibly split the atom, which could then lead to weaponizing that energy. And in 1939, that was the letter that basically got FDR to focus on what was happening in science and invest in the Manhattan Project. But in it, it has one of the most um, interesting lines in it, um, what they're, they're writing to the president about how dangerous this weapon might be. And they underscore that um, it could possibly be floated into a port because they imagined it would be so massive. It could be floated into a port and exploded and um, decimate the entire port. And that was so dangerous that we should pay attention to it. Now, fast forward six years, a mere six years, and the entire project had been completed and the weapon had been become so powerful that not only would it, as we know, go on to decimate a port, but it would destroy entire cities, ravage them, both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then very quickly after that, uh, the the technology evolved to um, potentially having the ability to destroy humanity as we know it. So this was a very fast moving um, uh, technology. Um, that stems back from, in many ways, even before, but that letter was a turning point. But the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists was established in 1945, and the timing of it is, is, is quite fascinating, and it has such relevance for now. But it was created really by Manhattan Project scientists, those who were um, in Chicago 
where uh, Enrico Fermi had split the atoms. Some had gone off to the Manhattan Project. Others had stayed home and worked on a kind of aligned technologies and science. But those scientists begin to realize that their creation um, has potential to do wild damage. And they have a responsibility in educating the public and um, understanding that science and politics are wedded pretty closely together. So many of them are European um, immigrants. They understand how science can be used. And so they start um, talking amongst themselves about what are they going to do and how can they contain potential damage. And once the bombs are dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki in August of 1945, they gather immediately in Chicago. And four months later, December of 1945, they print the first edition of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists to warn the public about this new technology that had such potential, but also such risks, and to try to argue for guardrails and governance of this new technology. Enter stage left Eugene Rabinovich, the Russian-American biophysicist. He's a significant player. Yeah, that's right. So he was our first editor, as you mentioned. He's a Russian immigrant. And what's so fascinating about him is he's a good scientist, but he's a beautiful writer. Um, And he understands the difficulties that the scientists are having in kind of communicating, right? That that they're they're really good at certain things, but not necessarily writing and communicating. And so he becomes kind of the editor's editor. He becomes the editor-in-chief of of what will become the bulletin. And he just writes really beautifully and really passionately, and he's able to communicate. And he's he's a really key player in all of this. And so what he begins to establish for us um, is this notion that you can't ask scientists to do everything. And in fact, we begin to bring journalists around uh, us. And now we're very much um, populated with journalists and by journalists. And so this notion that that the scientists can be paired with journalists and writers to help them communicate to the public. And then he also puts around them, they start attracting uh, like priests and ministers and others who are also, you know, really good at speaking publicly, um, lawyers and others. And so they begin to build uh, a lot of strength around the bulletin to communicate the message. But Gene Rabinovich is is an important figure and, and the editor really until from that point up until the um, early 70s when he passes away. Every year the clock is... Uh well, the position is announced in late January. Why that date, uh, Rachel? So in the beginning, when Eugene Rabinowitz was moving the clock, there wasn't a set time. He moved it when he thought it was appropriate, and he alone was the one who moved it. Um, and so the, the clock, if we just step back, was created in 1947. So the history of it is 1945, we become a bulletin, literally a black and white six-page bulletin that's sent out. But by 1947, we have a really large following and the the founders, Gene Rabinovich and others, Rob, uh, Robert Oppenheimer is a member of the uh, chairs, the board of sponsors and the great scientists of the day. And they realized that it's 1947 and the key communication vehicle, if you will, is, is a magazine. They need a magazine. So they start, they move from a bulletin to a magazine and in 1947, they need a cover Mag, uh, Time Magazine, Life Magazine, they all have these incredible covers. And so they know they need a cover. And so they commission one of their counterparts, Alex um, Langsdorf, who was a Manhattan Project scientist, was married to a uh, oil painter recognized here in Chicago named Martin Langsdorf. And they asked her to create something. And she experiments with different kind of ideas. And then she comes out with the first cover and they need something that's cheap because they don't have a lot of money and that can be easily replicated. And so she comes up with this clock in 1947. And it's a warning um, that like time is of the essence, but there's also the implication that we can do something about it. And so in 1949, when the uh, Soviets test their first atomic weapon, two, uh, uh, four years after the Americans, 
Eugene Rabinowitz takes this clock and he moves it on the cover of the magazine. So it moves. So this kind of interesting art piece, art, you know, artistic representation now suddenly becomes dynamic. And over time, that becomes the power of the doomsday clock. And so it was Gene, it was Eugene Rabinowitz who did this and really he moved it when he saw fit. So at different times when something consequential happened, he moved it uh, towards or away from midnight. Um, and so your question though is really interesting and why in January? So it hasn't always been in January, but of late it has been. And it's really important to us and to me that we do it in January because if we did it in December, it would be kind of the end of the year, right? Like summarizing the year and putting it to bed, if you would. But symbolically, we like to announce it in January because it's the start of the new year. We're able to kind of wrap up the year that's come before. But we start the new year with a sense of hope that this coming year, we can move the hands of the doomsday clock back. That it's not December, it's not the end, but it's the beginning of the year and we have it in our power to move it away from midnight. I'm old enough to remember, and I offer this in parentheses, dear listener, that Zillard, Einstein and Oppenheimer were all in their time regarded as security risks. Okay, let's look at a couple of very bad years for us and the clock. 1953, please, Rachel. Yeah, so in 1953, um, both the US and the Soviets uh, test hydrogen bombs, right? So now this is the moment where we started talking earlier in our conversation about a technology could be so powerful as to explode a port to, by 1945, it can destroy cities, whole cities. And the hydrogen, the hydrogen bonds now are so massive. And as we saw in the following years, it's just incredibly catastrophic that they'd have, they had the potential to, uh, with a few of them, destroy life on Earth as we know it. And so that move, that the, the, the two countries, um, the biggest nuclear powers, the only at the time, um, their ability now to move to hydrogen, bomb, hydrogen bombs was so terrifying that we moved the clock then to the closest it had ever been. Um, and so then it was a two minutes to midnight, I believe. The program is LNL. The guest is uh, Rachel Bronson. And now a paradox. I vividly recall the Cuban Missile Crisis in 62 when we all thought uh, the world was going, was about to end. But the hands on the clock didn't move. Why, Rachel? Yeah. So, and then eventually when they do move, they move away from midnight. So it takes this paradox and and makes it even more complicated. So, you know, there, there's a few explanations for it. One is we just got it wrong, but that doesn't really make sense that we just got it wrong because if you go back to the pages of the bulletin, there's this fascinating, it's, it's the, I think it's the issue right after um, the Cuban Missile Crisis where we have a guest editor and his essay, his opening essay is, you know, I'm writing from the airplane the Cuban Missile Crisis is transpiring. Um, I don't know that we're going to land, or if we do, there'll be anything for me to see. He truly believes that war is imminent, and it's only going to be by luck that we get through this, and that it has the potential to destroy all of humanity. So they did recognize the dangers in which they were um, living, and, and we, there's nothing like that written really ever again. It, the, the, the distress and panic of that moment was so palatable. And so, you know, I think back then, uh, first of all, they were all terrified, but by the time that they could bring the, the, you know, everyone together and figure out what was going on and get a magazine published. Remember this, just things moved a bit slower in the time. By the time that they could get that all together, not only was the Cuban Missile Crisis behind us, but they were already putting into place new arms control agreements and limiting the ability to, to test 
um, weapons. And they, they were so terrified that it compelled leaders, uh, the, the Soviet leaders and the American leaders, to institute a whole set of arms control agreements that would become the basis of about um, 40 years of serious arms control. The 90s, of course, become a period of some optimism, aided and abetted by one of my more distinguished guests on the program in Mikhail Gorbachev. Tell me why was the clock wound back by 17 minutes? Yeah, so the furthest away from midnight is in 1991 when we move it to 17 minutes to midnight. And it's the end of the Cold War. And and finally, around the world, people can take a breath. And we begin to see, um, again, our, not only arms control agreements, but real arms reductions. We start taking nuclear weapons off of hair trigger alerts, giving so we're really not on the cusp of every second which we're back on it now on hair trigger alert, but by then you could begin to um, uh, uh, separate the the warheads from the delivery systems and all that. And you could, and we were beginning to pull out uh, weapons from Europe, and all those things start happening. We could foresee that, and so this was re- a real great achievement. And um, the Bulletin founders and many others had a lot to be proud of, and the people who had marched all over the world and. Um, and so it was considered a we considered a really great, great moment and moved it all the way back to 17 minutes to midnight and basically a, a victory move and uh, to, just to convey how important these changes were. Rachel, for most of its uh, distinguished life, the uh, the clock is focused on, yes, the nuclear threat. But in 2007, you add climate change as the other big existential threat. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, the question really becomes, and I've taken a pretty hard look at the bulletin's history on this and to say, is is the bulletin a uh, an organization focused solely on nuclear issues or is the bulletin fundamentally about the advancement of technology that has existential consequences? And um, you don't have to answer that question in 1940s and 50s because the only technologies kind of that have the ability to um, affect humanity as we know it uh, are nuclear weapons. But if you go back through all of the magazines and all of their internal writings, you see these were just very socially minded scientists who understood that science was moving extremely quickly. And even at the 10-year anniversary of the bulletin, so in 1955, Rabinowitz, who we were talking about, was asked, why was the bulletin founded? He gives three reasons. But the third reason was to manage manage the dangerous presence of Pandora's box of modern science. So really from the beginning, it was their understanding modern science, that it was moving so quickly. And the only thing that wasn't moving quickly enough was, as Einstein said, uh, our ability to understand it and so, or manage it. And so by the time we get to 2007, you can no longer answer the question, which is the question I I ask the, the Science and Security Board each year, is humanity safer or at greater risk this year compared to last year and this year compared to the years we've been asking this question? And you can no longer answer that question without taking into consideration climate change. The bulletin had been covering climate change since the late 60s, one of the first you know, uh, magazines to do so. And by 1978, we have a cover story with the title is Mankind Changing the Climate, and you open it and they say, we say yes. So they were really grappling with technology and the Industrial Revolution and its consequences. And so by the time you get to 2007, you really can't answer the question, is humanity safer at greater risk without including climate. But Rachel, Rachel, you're now looking at other technologies like artificial intelligence, aren't you? Yeah, and so what we do is we've we've declared that these two climate change and nuclear issues are two existential threats that that are based on humans' creation, and so so we keep our eyes very closely on others. So we look at bio risks, right? The I mean, this has been a huge in the last few years, but 
you know, uh, man's ability to create new viruses and, and, and the technologies available and how are we going to keep ourselves safe from that? And in the last few weeks, we've been looking at artificial intelligence here in the States. Certainly it's become a, a major issue. And I'm sure in Australia, you're following this too, as key leaders uh, within the tech community are raising their hands to say that there's something very dangerous going on, that we should pay attention to artificial intelligence. And through our conversations, I've been using the term guardrails very intentionally because that's exactly what AI leaders are calling for, that we need to figure out how to manage this new technology. And not surprisingly, they're referencing Oppenheimer at today's New York Times in the United States. There's this big piece because kind of the godfather of AI has just stepped away from uh, Google. I know The Guardian and others have been covering it, but they talk about uh, his role in creating a new technology. And he often references or summons Oppenheimer. So these issues of science moving very and technology moving quickly and our, the need for us to create um, governance structures, it's becoming more frequent because science is moving so fast. And it's exactly what our founders of my organization kind of foresaw. Rachel, you talk about your founders rather like uh, constitutionalists talk about that uh, great US document. Finally, and that's a word I use with some reluctance, what does a world beyond midnight look like? You know, we have a really hard time answering that question because midnight really is the apocalypse. It's the end of humanity as we know it. And so our, we really focus on how to prevent ourselves from getting there. How do we make sure we don't get there? Because it's, it's too hard for us anyway to imagine. So many tipping points. Rachel, thank you very much for coming on. That has been a remarkable performance from Rachel Bronson. Rachel is the President and CEO of the Bulletin of Atomic Sciences and uh, she's one of the timekeepers of the Doomsday Clock in Chicago. Coming up, uh, well, some relief, a stroll through Australia's Botanic Gardens. In most Australian cities, you'll find a botanic garden, a manicured oasis preserved for the public as an escape from uh, urban Malay. One could look at the gardens as colonial relics established by the Brits as nostalgic reminders of Europe. But over the centuries, Australia's bot gardens have changed, not just in their botanic Makeup, but also in the role they play in our growing cities. Sue Martin is an emeritus professor at La Trobe. Her background is in literary studies, but she's written extensively about garden history and culture in Australia. Sue, Australia's first pot gardens established in Sydney, but I learned from you that its uh, first flowerings were in the form of a farm. Yes, it started off as the government farm uh, and even then it was used by Philip right at the very beginning, Governor Philip, to investigate and uh, experiment with introduced plants and seeds. He brought seeds with him with the hope of establishing crops in Australia. But it soon became also very important as an actual source of food, although that uh, distribution was limited to the more genteel people in the colony. Yes, talk to that briefly because he was absolutely a snob. Yes, well, by the time the, the actual botanic gardens were established under under Macquarie, he was um, he was a great snob, but they were all interested in um, re-establishing some level of British class division in Australia. So the gardens were fenced off and Macquarie was quite obsessive about his fence and people using the proper entrance. Uh, because he didn't believe in the idea that the gardens were common property. 
literally to commoners. Uh, some of them felt that they had rights to pull up the trees, mine for rocks and building materials and so on in the domain area. And uh, he fenced that off for the use of the settlers, so the landed gentry rather than or landed uh, aspiring gentry rather than the general people and certainly the convicts. And there was an ongoing battle between access to those spaces. And the idle and profligate, which certainly includes the likes of me, were not welcome. No, not in the early years at all. The, the vision of the garden was a, something more like a, a gentleman's park or a royal park. Uh, and so the early botanic gardens were, in fact, um, patrolled by soldiers to keep the commoners, the hoi polloi, out of the garden. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and yet he was a bit of a romantic in that uh, he officially establishes the bots on the 13th of June, 1816, which happened to be his wife's birthday. Yes, and she was very involved in its uh, its design and the layout of the, the domain and uh, to a lesser extent, the Botanic Garden. So, yes, it was it was partly seen, I think, as a bit of private space for them, although others were allowed in. Uh, and uh, Mrs Macquarie oversaw some plantings, including the, the wishing tree, which survived until, which was a Norfolk pine, which survived until 1945, I think. I should point out in parenthesis that uh, the farm that preceded it moved to Parramatta, a bit like the ABC is doing now. Now, the governor, well, his idea of of a new Australian botanic garden was to create a nostalgic European space, wasn't it? Something that looked and smelt like home. Yes, well, he's got a few drivers or, or goals, I think, in establishing the Botanic Gardens, certainly as a space for people to um, to feel at home and to see the trees that they were familiar with from their European background. He did that by displacing native trees, but of course, also the, the Aboriginal people. There's a lot of evidence that there were some ceremonial grounds on the the area that's now part of the domain and the botanic gardens. But he was also very interested in uh, collecting and cultivating native plants, partly to enhance his prestige. So there's a, a growing exchange of plants and seeds across the globe and not necessarily just back to Britain. And you could um, raise your profile amongst the genteel by having some control of this. And Macquarie was quite interested in that. As Australian cities grow and urbanise through the uh, 1800s, there's that big push to open up the bots to the public, isn't it? Yes, yes, absolutely. The the growing ideas, some of those coming from Britain, that uh, ordinary people needed a space uh, to get away from the growing urban centres and to uh, experience recreation, Um, but also a strong idea that gardens were morally elevating. So if you got the common people in to experience the gardens, then then they would behave in a more uh, orderly manner. So they weren't just the lungs of the city, they were a form of uh, self-improvement. Yes, and of course that's part of the reason that uh, plants are labelled. You know, the expectation was that that ordinary people would learn about plants from looking at the labels in the botanic gardens and indeed in some public parks and even some cemeteries included tree labels. Now, I mentioned uh, that the, the governor was a bit of a romantic. Let's move on to a time when socialising in... Uh, public gardens was also an opportunity for romance. Yes, well, I think that starts very early. Part of Macquarie's concern and uh, and later in the early 20th century, Maiden's concern about the uh, the public gardens in Sydney was that people were getting a little too romantic in these spaces <laughs> and some of the plantings provided uh, opportunities for concealment and activities that were not moral and an anxiety about the more genteel people mixing with the so-called servant class who were the ones supposed to be um, getting romantic under the shrubberies. Much of real life work has concerned uh, 19th century Australian literature. Tell me about The Three Miss Kings. The Three Miss Kings is a novel by Ada Cambridge, which is set during the Melbourne 1880 
exhibition. Um, gardens were important to the public exhibitions in, in Australia, in Sydney as well, the year before. But in the 1880s, um, the, the exhibition was a, an opportunity to showcase Australia. And that included, of course, the exhibition gardens, uh, but also the other gardens around Melbourne. And The Three Miss Kings is interesting because it describes uh, the women escaping from the city. They've come from the country, these three sisters, to the city, um, but the escape and the refreshment of, uh, of walking through the gardens uh, as genteel young lady, although there are sort of romantic encounters for them in these gardens <laughs> and indeed in the exhibition. I was a Melbourneian for the first half of my long life and uh, loved Melbourne's bots with, of course, Government House stuck in front like a, a piece of wedding cake. And we have to thank a remarkable fellow called Ferdinand Muller for them. Yes, Muller was very enthusiastic about collecting plants and he was notable also a little later around the 1860s for distributing plants and seeds a bit more generously than some of the previous botanic garden directors in various uh, uh, colonies because he didn't just limit his distribution to settlers and that was part of his downfall because by the, the mid-19th century, of course, if you're giving away seeds and plants, you're um, impinging on the nursery industry. Well, let's look at his downfall. I'd forgotten if I ever knew that he got the boot. He did get the boot, partly because of uh, this nursery industry conflict, um, partly probably personal conflicts, but largely also because his idea of the Botanic Gardens was a very scientific one. He was interested in the labels, in in uh, producing kind of educational collections and specific botanic drivers. And the general people who were interested in picnic grounds and, uh, and promenades got increasingly restive about the state of the lawns and the plantings of the trees not being aesthetic enough. Uh, and that was, yeah, not good for Mueller in the end. He was replaced by Guilfoyle, who's much better known around Australia and certainly Victoria for aesthetic plantings. Now, Sue, climate change is a great challenge of our time, but uh, Australia's bot gardens have struggled with climate and soil from the get-go, haven't they? At the farm, at my farm, we've planted gardens over and over again, only to see them perish in the endless cycle of drought. Yes, right from the start, of course, the gardens were, well, most of them were planted where they had an ample source of water. The, the um, Sydney domain is arranged around the tank stream, so, uh, but they soon found that the climate was a challenge. Uh, there's uh, a record of uh, Schomburg and, well, other directors, but Schomburg wrote to the journal Nature about the the impact of the drought in the 1880s on the garden and the particularly introduced plantings. And it was drought and frost, you know, the, the famous variable Australian climate that uh, was disturbing him at the time. In the 21st century, uh, gardens are starting, well, right from the start, I think gardens were adapting. Gardens are gardens and so they're always changing. Uh, but more recently, the Botanic Gardens of Australia and New Zealand have got together with a kind of sustainability guidelines and uh, a landscape succession toolkit, which is a bit of a depressing and apocalyptic document, but looks at what would happen to the plantings in their gardens if the temperature, ambient temperature rises to the extent that it's predicted in climate change and how to adapt to that, how to change the plantings, how to um, maintain the water supply to the plants that need it most and how to take advantage of shifts in climate that might mean you can now grow in your garden, your botanic garden, something that formerly would not have survived. You make the point that uh, the Geelong Gardens now use wastewater and Perth's have uh, shifted significantly towards uh, native plants. Yes, the the Botanic Garden in Kings Park in Perth was the last capital garden established and has always been planted largely with native plants. And that one also uses wastewater. Most of the botanic gardens now use recycled water, wastewater, uh, water retention projects, um, 
water uh, clarification or um, filtration systems to try and make the absolute most out of uh, the water supplies that they have. Uh, because in times of drought, gardens become a controversial user of water. So they're, um, they have naturally taken to using the water that uh, people don't really want to drink. Sue, are our bot gardens doing a better job of acknowledging First Nation botanical knowledge? Yes, generally. Um, there is also, of course, uh, an Indigenous botanic garden, an Indigenous-run botanic garden, the Boudoui Garden, which is a former Jarvis Bay Botanic Garden. So that's entirely run by uh, its Indigenous owners. Um, most if not all the capital gardens have uh, tours run by Indigenous guides or designed by uh, the local Indigenous people to um, uh, illustrate the long, long history of the plants in the gardens and how they were used, what their traditional and ceremonial uh, importance was, and also their names because, of course, uh, European naming practices overran the traditional naming of plants and uh, trees. Sue, you say that our bot gardens are, and I quote, a guide for mapping out what is doomed and what needs preserving. So what does the future look like for our gardens in Australia? I think it's pretty promising because the gardens have been so proactive in shifting their water uh, sources and water usages, in being aware of the need to start planning for uh, climate change or, or accelerated climate change, I think, is the issue here. Climate always changes, but the rate of acceleration means that there's not going to be evolutionary adaptation at this at the speed that we need. And the gardens are also really important and always have been in educating the populace in what to plant, how to keep it alive, you know, what might be a new thing you might think about as your garden dries out or is exposed to long periods of heat. So I think the gardens will survive. They might not look quite the same. So as long as we can kick out the idle and the profligate, I think, <laughs> their, I think their future is assured, as is your own, Sue Martin, Emeritus Professor in English at La Trobe, and you can read more about the history of Australian bot gardens in her piece on The Conversation or in her splendid book, Reading the Garden, published by Melbourne University Press. And I'm now going to borrow a phrase, a very famous phrase from another gardening program, and that's your bloomin' lot. On our next, another update from the Pacific, and we're going to delve into the murky world of deep sea mining. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.